Are you ready to learn? Because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information. Make sure and listen all the way to the end to get help and support. So let's start with the best audio experience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show. Today, I'm excited to discuss about marketing, common marketing with Jared Kligerman. Am I right to pronounce your name? You got it. Perfect. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, great, great. Okay, before we start, introduce a little bit about yourself uh, and uh, why you decided to take this niche marketing, because uh, someone can think that uh, it's boring, you know, uh, uh, but uh, I, I disagree. I think that uh, marketing is great if you uh, differentiate yourself from others, if you, uh, it's art, you know, yeah, if you create your art, you can get uh, um, uh, results, rewards, you know, with sales. Okay, uh, share about your experience and background first sure sure so my background experience is a bit of a weird path to how i got up to where i am now so um, academically my background i've got two bachelor of sciences and um, one in biology one in neuropsychology um, then went to my mba so i've got a really solid deep understanding around human behavior how people think why people say the things they say buy the things they buy do the things they do so Uh, for a little over seven years, I was in the world of management consulting, and I actually worked um, with an incredible company called Wits Education. Uh, we worked with leaders from smaller insurance brokerages to the big financial institutions like BMO uh, to some really cool clients out of the U.S., like, oh, I don't know, the White House, uh, and then some global companies like um, Tate and Lyle, Griffith Foods, a few others. So we did some really neat work all around leadership and communication and culture development. I had a great time there. Uh, we did some really cool work. I headed up our marketing and business development there as well. Um, and then about five years ago, a buddy of mine from my MBA called me up and said, hey, I think you're looking for something a little new, something to challenge you. Um, I know you like marketing and I'm thinking about buying this agency. Um, now, I don't want to run it. So this buddy of mine's at one of the big five banks. Uh, he's like, look, I, I like the business side of it, but I don't want to know anything about the marketing. But you love this stuff. Come run it for me. And I went, whoa, 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 back up. You want me to do what? He's like, come and run this agency. So um, that's how I jumped over from this world of management consulting and culture development to shopper marketing specifically. And so, you know, I joined the team here at the Think Tank um, and I'm kind of living the life uh, that I used to try and help other leaders create. Because one of the big challenges I find or found and still find with founders or, you know, some of the early staff within a team within some of these organizations is that as they grow, The things that they used to do every part of, they have to let go and they have to trust other people to do it. And if you've been the person who's been making that product and, you know, from the formulation to creating it, to shipping it, everything yourself, to let go of that control is really challenging for some people. What's awesome about the think tank is that um, I don't have a choice in the matter because I quite honestly don't have enough experience and don't have the skill set to execute what we do. I have to trust my VPs, uh, Sherry Ann and Justin, who are incredible at what they do. I mean, Sherry Ann's been with us for coming up 18 years now, basically started as a high school intern, just loved what she did so much. She stayed with us part-time through school, then joined back, went through production, through accounts, and now she heads up our client service and strategy. And Justin is a third generation creative. So both his father and grandfather were in agency creatives, Uh, so he grew up in this space. So he's done everything. So between them, they really create amazing work that's executed by the rest of the team who are also awesome. Uh, so my role is really much more on agency strategy, looking at the trends, going above and beyond in the research and the development. Um, and then within the client work, I do some stuff. I do some um, short and long form copy and I do editing and I you know get coffees for everyone when we were in the office. And now that I'm remote, 
send coffee to them when we have crazy, crazy weeks of work. Uh, that's kind of my role. So it's really fun for me because I get to do what I love most, which is talking to people, meeting new people, hearing about what the challenges are, and staying on top of the trends that I find interesting, which are things like your consumer behavior, retail development trends, integration of technology into retail, um, product trends, health trends, all of that stuff. And it really helps in understanding uh, what our clients are looking for, their target audiences. And so when we start to go pitch and develop concepts, we get a brief with all this info. And then I usually have some extra points to add on top, not to mention, um, you kind of mentioned differentiation. And I'm a huge advocate that everything needs to be differentiated from your logo straight through to the display you have in store. Um, and so we we take that really seriously. You know, our, our kind of catchphrase or, or tagline for the agency is we engage deeper. And that applies to everything we do. So when we're looking to create a campaign, we're just not following the brief. And what a couple of examples they may have had from the last couple of years, we're looking at the entire category over the last five years, not just in Canada, but globally to see who's doing what, are there any trends, is anything being overused? Um, you know, if anyone follows me on LinkedIn, you've probably seen me railing on about uh, the number of yellow school bus displays in stores this passed back to school. It was crazy. There was way too many. And I flagged, there's going to be a problem with it. And sure enough, not a week later, there's a display from one brand with a competitor brand piece in it. Um, so that's kind of what I do within the agency. That's why I wanted to come and jump on here too, because I love talking marketing and, and especially differentiation. Yeah, awesome experience. I love it. Yeah, uh, and um, I want to start from uh, the first question. Uh, let's differentiate our topic <laughs> about, uh, uh, because I see a lot of books uh, um, on your background. And, uh, you know, uh, I often get the question, where to find time to read books if you have a lot of things to do? Uh, and <laughs> I think you know the, the answer to this question. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, I have a lot of books behind me, and I've read not a lot of them, to be too completely honest. A lot of them are my wife's, I have to say. Like, a lot of them are my wife's, are like, hand me down to my parents or her parents. So, um, and I will say that these days, I also have a very hard time finding time to read, you know. Um, to sit down and read a book or, like, a novel. I just don't have that type of time between the agency. I've got a three-year-old daughter, uh, and my wife and I just launched a side business, a food product uh, called Wander, uh, back in August. So, we're a little strapped for time. So, um, what I find myself doing more these days is reading the summaries or, um, you know, I find a lot of what I'm trying to, to learn more about these days isn't, it's available in books, but it's not necessarily the best source of that information. You know, if I go back to my undergrad days or any type of university days, you know, what you see in the textbook is already a couple years old, right? So I was in sciences. So sciences change pretty quickly, especially the more advanced you get. And so it's one of those things where you read something in a textbook and then you read a scientific journal that just came out that you know in two editions is going to change that textbook, right? So I find I'm fine. I spend more time in my day reading through articles, through, uh, you know, Google alerts or through industry newsletters um, or LinkedIn, actually. LinkedIn's a great source if you, have the, if you follow the right people where I'm just getting so much information across so many topics that, you know, I can basically pick any of these are more my books over here, they're all leadership and, and marketing, but I can almost pull any book off there and, you know, within a couple of minutes, find equivalent sources for all that data and, and that info through my network or through articles. So, you know, for those who are don't have the time to sit down with a book, I feel you. It's tough. Audiobooks are great because you can do them on the go or while you're working out. Um, it's what got me into podcasts, actually. I was not a podcast listener until I realized my morning commute, I could only listen to 680 News so many times and hear the traffic report so many times before I went crazy. Um, and so now I'm a little bit more limited on time, you know, working out, podcasts are great, audiobooks are great, but really I default to the shorter format. Let me read what I need to read to get what I need. And if I need more, at least I know where the source is. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, setting priorities. I agree with that. Okay. Uh, you mentioned about uh, differentiate uh, yourself or business. Uh, I often see when marketers uh, set up generic campaigns, uh, trying to steal uh, traffic and sales from their competitors. They do totally the same what their competitors uh, provide. But you know, it's interesting that their competitors have uh, strong positions. You know, <laughs> in their content, uh, perhaps uh, a lot of backlinks, mentions, authority, trust, and. Uh, I usually search for uh, weaknesses, uh, for uh, gaps, uh, uh, for uh, flaws in their strategies. And uh, can you share your insights? How to differentiate yourself from competitors? Uh, for example, if you wanna jump to overwhelming uh, 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 trade uh, with uh, oversaturated with many competition, uh, how to differentiate yourself? Sure. I mean, um, because we specialize in consumer packaged goods, like that's our main client base. Uh, for what we do in Shopper, for us, we're really looking at how do we make you stand out for the for the consumer, right? How do we drive that trial and purchase really at the core of what we do? So a lot of what we do is exactly that, trying to find the gaps or the unique position that's going to resonate with that target audience in a way that nobody else is talking about it, right? And so if you look at a really crowded category, there's so many to pick from. Let me go with energy bars because I know lots of people in that space and some who've just launched into that space. Uh, it's hyper crazy. It's crazy. Right. If you're just going in with another clean label, better for you version, you will get lost. Right. And so there's a few things right out the gate that I think you really need to be looking at um, with your products is what really makes your product different than everyone else's. Um, is that something that your target audience cares a lot about? Is that a major thing or a minor thing? Because what's crazy is that, you know, your big differentiation might be that you're keto. That's not a differentiator anymore, by the way. There's several brands in that space, but say that's what you're doing. Um, but you might find that because you take more of an active lifestyle approach that your target audience actually tends to be more mountain climbers and, you know, outdoor folk who are, care about keto, but not for the reason that it's keto, but they care more about the high fat because it takes longer to burn off. So when they're climbing, it gives them more sustained energy. So your messaging gets tweaked to not be about the keto, but about long lasting energy to get you to the top of that mountain. Right. And so really understanding what's in, what makes your product unique. Not just from your own um, from your own perspective, but also what your target audience is seeing, and then um, from there, that's going to now um, shift how you look at your communication. It's going to shift what your campaigns look like, your content looks like. It might even shift how your logo gets redesigned down the road when you start to grow and you need to shift your brand. Um, you might want to incorporate some of that into your brand if that becomes a big thing, right? So that's one way to differentiate yourself for sure. Is know exactly what that is. In really crowded categories, the reality is the product alone probably isn't that different, right? That, that, you know, I'll, I'll slide into peanut butter for a second because I'm in that space with my other product. Um, when you look at natural peanut butters, and this is no offense to anybody in the space because I know a number of founders there too, and I love them to pieces and the product's great, but a natural peanut butter is a natural peanut butter is a natural peanut butter, right? You can't spin what's in that jar beyond its peanuts. Right? Different ratios of different types, sure. But do you think the standard consumer knows the difference? No, it's peanut butter in a jar. So if you're a product like that, you need to find a new way to differentiate yourself. So if you can't do it through your product, it's what your brand stands for. So it can be from a look standpoint. So going back to the energy bar, there's a company called NAC, I think I'm saying that right, um, out of Montreal. Um, and their boxes are bright yellow. Their packaging is bright yellow. You cannot miss it on that row because as you look down, it's White box, white box, white box, a couple black ones, more white ones, and bright yellow. And like, holy crap, what is that thing? 
and you get drawn over to it and they are very athlete oriented. So you get there and everything's athlete talk and it focused on athletes and it's incredible. They have a really well-developed brand. So really standing out, not from what the product is, it, it does have differentiation in the product too, but look at the branding is incredible. It really pops out. So the other way you can differentiate is on your social cause and you know, and social cause brands, social oriented brands have really gained in an, or the, the having a social element to your brand has become more and more important over the years. And now those brands that are really focused on social give back, they're using it as a differentiator cause marketing. Um, you have to be do it right. So a great example of that would be someone like Mungri or Fatso, both in the peanut butter space. Again, I, I'm playing a lot in that space right now. Um, but both, so Fatso is also a, a more of a keto oriented, high fat peanut butter. So they have a product differentiation, but both of them, Mungri in particular, talk more about what they stand for as a brand than the product themselves, especially Mumgri. So if you look at Mumgri, you know, they stand for mums, for, you know, BIPOC founders and BIPOC communities for equality. And it, they are a megaphone and a rallying point for that. And so when you buy a jar of Mumgri, which again, no disrespect in any way, shape or form is natural peanut butter in a glass jar, right? But you're paying 12 bucks a jar, 10 to 12 bucks a jar, depending on where you're buying it you're paying a massive premium, less so for what's in that jar than what that brand is standing for. So when you're differentiating yourself in your marketing, you're not marketing your product, you're marketing the community. And it's a totally different approach to what you do as well. So there's a, a whole bunch of different ways you can differentiate. And so when we start working with, so our brands tend to be bigger brands, so they already have a lot of this established, but more when I'm chatting with these smaller brands, because I spend 80% of my time more or less talking to smaller brands who aren't big enough for my agency. Um, a lot of what I talk to them about is exactly this. You know, you're in a crowd category. How are you standing out? What's that differentiator? How are you communicating that? Is that actually what's important to your consumer? And that changes. Are you staying on top of that? You know, there's a, a bone broth company called Broya um, out of Toronto. I know the founder, Tim, a great guy. And we were just talking as we did his packages. And he's shifted what's on his package from organic to grass-fed. Because people don't care about organic anymore. They want to see that the cows are grass-fed. So he's staying on top of what's trending and what consumers are looking for and adjusting and responding to that in a very authentic way. And that's a key point too, is that whatever you do has to be authentic to your brand. You know, um, If you don't, aren't comfortable dancing and singing, you probably shouldn't be the face of your brand on TikTok. Just saying, like you're not gonna look comfortable. It's gonna look awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you remind me a book, uh... Purple Cow, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, written by Seth Godin. Yeah, uh, it's not on my it's not on my shelf, but I do have that book somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, awesome book. Okay, uh, and you know, uh, even more, uh, I remember uh, a story from my client, and uh, when he reached out to me and asked, please, I need to promote this keyword uh, weight loss. Uh, I check out results, you know, <laughs> in the top 10, only a uh, billion dollar companies, you know, <laughs> uh, some of them 10 billion dollars company. Uh, and I, I replied to him, we don't need to uh, try and to outrank them. You know, it's better to find their weaknesses to search for uh, something uh, that your competitors ignore. Even big companies, they can't uh, cover uh, uh, many topics. Yeah, it's better to find the strategy and provide it. For example, uh, they, they're strong. For example, even Amazon has strong positions in many topics, but far away from everything. <laughs> and yes, it's better It's better to find them. Okay, uh, let's talk uh, how to uh, craft the right strategy. Uh, 
for example, I, I can share my insights. Um, in SEO world, we usually search for topics that have a lack of quality content and low competition. Uh, it's not about a unique selling proposition. Of course, it's important, USP, but um, uh, it's more about uh, searching for uh, content gap. Uh, if we know that we can create something better, much better content. Uh, or, for example, we type keywords on Google and uh, check out results. If we see irrelevant results or low con uh, quality content, we know, okay, we can cover these topics. Uh, what about marketing? How to find uh, or craft the right strategy uh, by analyzing your competitors? Yeah, great question. So um, it's a big question too. So a lot of what we do in Shopper, right? So we're really focused around trial and sales, right? So people come to me all the time saying, hey, we really want to blow up our social media. And I say, that's amazing. We're probably not the agency for you because what you need is a community social media agency, right? They're going to have someone dedicated sitting on your accounts every second of every day, responding to messages, building the community. It's just a lot of content and it's not the format we operate in. So we're much more around the campaign and to do annual strategies, but broken down into here's where we want the sales lifts. And I bring up sales lifts right away because a lot of what we do is tied into um, oh, our main KPIs are typically sales oriented. Mm -hmm. And so we work closely with the sales teams and trade teams as well to be able to draft our strategy because what we do gets influenced by them as well because we need to know where it's being merchandised, how it's currently being merchandised, where it's being stocked, are you bringing in excuse for this? Um, do you have secondary locations that we can leverage? So when we start looking, it's a little bit different from an agency than the people I tend to talk to on my day to day because agency, we typically have a brief, right? It's we want this retailer with this type of lift, with this type of thing and we go, great, we'll help you develop the campaign to blow that out. On the earlier strategy side is where we're really working with the brand to understand that. So we want to know what are your top stores, what are your top 10%, your lowest 10%, why are they operating the way they are and performing the way they are? Um, you know, how good is your relationship with your category managers and buyers? Is there something that we can negotiate so we can, you know, leverage, um, you know, maybe you can talk to your sales team and you can work out a, a pallet deal so you can get secondary placements in a flyer position leading up to this big campaign. So for us, our strategy focuses on um, one, what are you trying to accomplish? Two, what, what's everyone else doing in that marketplace? And that, so that's really going through the, the retailer, the category, the time of year, the event we're going on, right? Um, what's your budget? And people hate talking about budget. And I understand people not wanting to talk about budget because they think immediately, because I'm an agency and before that as a consultant, you if I say, if they tell me $100,000, I'm going to send them a quote for $100,001 because that's what you know the perception is. But the reality is that budget has such an impact on what the strategy is, particularly for what we do. Um, you know, if you're not in the product world, you probably don't know that if you're trying to put a an ad into a one of the big retailers in Canada, your media costs are five figures, right? It's a lot of money to have just one of those blades on the shelf that for you to see, it's, you know, it's not, it's a five figure amount, just the media, let alone the creative and the printing and the installation and all of that. So, you know, I'll do, when people come to me, I, I just literally just happened a couple of weeks ago. This guy got so mad. He wanted to work with me. I want to work with him too. I'm dying to work with him. He just doesn't have the budgets where it makes sense because he has an amazing social strategy in place with a good budget behind it. And he's working with a decent agency. So I can go and do that. So budget's a big piece for us. Um, so from those three, you are typically able to understand what, what channels we can leverage, who your consumer is, how everyone else is talking to them, what those consumers are looking for.
And so from that, we start to, and then we look at the calendar, right? Obviously, depending on your product, there's going to be key times of years where you need to be in market. So like back to school, if you have anything to do with kids, you have something for back to school, right? Most foods try and do something for back to school or the winter holidays or whatever. So then we build out the strategy, looking at those key points, maximizing that strategy for ROI. So for us, that's typically tied to a sales number. And then uh, we look to, from a retail standpoint, which stores are going to have the greatest impact. You know, sometimes you want to have something in every store across the country. Um, sometimes you just want it in, you know, three or four flagship stores per major city. And the actual campaign is all the buzz you get on social about that contest, right? You see it all the time in the States. And it's a really smart strategy for smaller brands who have tighter budgets because you're, you know, you're spending a little bit less on your media in store but you're still getting the echo effect and the ripple effect going out through that social media. So, you know, last Halloween with COVID restrictions, wasn't much trick or treating. You saw brands like uh, Reese's peanut butter cups and O Henry and um, Hershey at large, all developing these really cool in consumer engagements, but they're only really available in one city or maybe a couple cities. And so if you weren't in that city, you couldn't take part. And that was kind of a bummer. But to see it and the ads they got out of it were very cool and the ripple was amazing. Um, so when we develop strategy, we're kind of looking at, at all of that. It's it's not a, a straightforward, we look for one thing. It is a number of different factors we have to look at to really properly develop the strategy. Yeah. So that's why well, I, I don't do it directly is I let my VPs do it because I'm good, but they've got the experience where they'll be like, oh, you forgot to take into consideration this flyer in this place that's running the week before this. I'm like, oh, I yeah, you know what? I totally missed that. <laughs> uh, but that's why I have them doing our actual strategy where I just got to talk about the big picture stuff. Yeah, got it. Yeah, valuable, valuable. Okay, uh, let's talk about learning customers. Yeah, you mentioned that you uh, we want to learn your customers, uh, but how uh, to do it? For example, I know that many you, uh, uh, companies use uh, paid tools, for example, to check out data, the average data or online studies. But, you know, uh, I think the average data is far away from the real uh, customer uh, customers insights because uh, each case is different, you, especially if you have unique select proposition. Share your insights, how to learn customers, for example, uh, for a new client. Great question. So, you know, first and foremost, you have to look at what the product is, right? Most products have a natural target audience based on the founder, usually, or what the founder assumes will be their target audience, right? And then um, and there's lots of ways to kind of vet that, you know, you're right, there's a lot of the, like the Nielsen data, the sales data is not easy to access, and is expensive, very expensive. So, uh, you know, there's other ways to do it, though, you can go and check out your competitor's social media. Right? Who are their audience? Who are they following? And the same way you kind of do it when you're doing Google ads or anything else, you know, you look at the uh, what everyone else is doing and see how they're targeting those people. Um, it also lets you figure out their hooks and how your hook can be different, right? Going back to differentiation, you want to know who 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 the other brands are drawing. So you can decide, do you want to compete to get them? Or do you see a gap that they're not properly engaging that you can pull over because you can authentically get them to you? So that's one way. Um, a huge part of what I do, I kind of mentioned before, is staying on top of consumer trends. So I get industry newsletters that talk about, uh, you know, I get one from Bakery Bakery and Snacks is the name of the, the newsletter. And so whenever there's an update released from Nielsen or Ipsos or any of those bigger ones around, here's the trends in, in buying data or in, you know, the holidays coming up and consumers are, are expecting to spend less this year or more, whatever that trend happens to be. I'm getting all that. So when I'm now trying to think about my target audience, I know 
um, from a more general sense, what people are doing. So it helps me refine who my target audience is going to be. So those secondary sources out there are A, free, which is great. Takes a little bit more time because you got to source through them. Um, but everything you need is mostly there. So, you know, auditing social, um, auditing digital, same way. Um, and then mining through the industry newsletters to see what the trends are in both your specific category, but also in consumer buying um, buying habits as well as consumer product interest. You know, going back to what are the the qualities of that product that are making them buy one over the other. You know, you, it changes so often. You know, plant based right now exploding. You put plant based on anything, you know, let's take off. Um, but that's starting to die down a little bit. Not, not that that growth is still there. What I mean by that is the word plant based has got gone a little overused. Um, and not always correctly in certain markets. And so it's getting a little murky. So that might not be the phrase you want to use anymore. So, you know, if you have an inkling, that's what you won't be able to get from these secondary sources, right? You won't be able to test that. And that's where uh, even us at the think tank, you know, I can do get us to that point. But when we're about to go pitch a, a, on a brief, assuming we have enough time, I actually go and run a survey. Let me go straight to the target audience and ask them directly, right? You know, which one of these gift cards is going to be most, inf will have the biggest impact on your purchase decision? what one of these prizes, when you're shopping, what's your top concern in this category, whatever it happens to be. Um, and, you know, it does it cost cash. Yeah, it's, you know, a few thousand dollars. It's not nothing. But if you once you have that knowledge, so for you, if you want to really understand your target audience, and you put together a 10 question survey that really hammers on the specific questions around, you know, where are you buying your products? What makes you buy this one over that one? Why do you buy that one? All of that? That is so much worth so much more than what the three, four thousand dollars, five thousand dollars you'll spend on the survey, because it's going to shape all of your marketing, your strategy, your business strategy, your branding. Everything goes back to the results of that survey. So, you know, I there's you don't need to pay for the most expensive data out there to be able to make really smart strategic decisions around your marketing. You might have to spend a little bit, but it's really um, you as the founder or marketing manager or VP marketing, whatever your title is, um, will know from just being able to look at all the data in front of you to say, oh, you know what? I think something's here, right? And then you can either go and test it, do a survey, or spend a little bit less. And if you have you know, a founder, or if you're willing to spend a little bit of cash on social or digital, go test it. Try that positioning and see what it takes off, right? Um, going back to Berea, they tested it. They tried talking about gut health and seeing if that really took off. And wouldn't you know, the most successful posts are about that. So you know, ding, that's what matters most to my audience right now. So I'm going to shift what I'm doing to focus on that. Or not everything, but there's now a higher percentage of content around that than the other differentiators, like it's grass-fed beef, which is amazing and definitely something that I would care about, um, but not the primary consumer. So there's still something in there for me. So one in every few posts, like, oh, grass-fed, amazing. See cows out in the field eating grass. Oh, makes me feel so good about what I'm getting. Um, but, you know, so for him, he has tried it. He tested it and then just paid attention to the numbers, right? And gave it time, right? We all know that if you're running something social digital, if you let run for a week and you're expecting Insta results, easy, killer. easy. You got to give it some time. Um, but give it the right bandwidth and you'll know, right? You would look at the data and be like, oh, that was the right move. I've nailed my little niche and I'm going to now double down. Or, huh, that wasn't, it, we got a little lift. It wasn't quite what I was expecting. So let's go back to the drawing board and, and recheck that. And then at that point, maybe you do spend a little bit more money to go and be like, oh, that wasn't what I thought. I thought it was going to be really successful. Let's go and find out why that wasn't successful, um, which I think is also probably the biggest thing anybody can learn is not how other people have succeeded, but where they failed and why they failed.
right? It's almost impossible to fully replicate someone else's success. It is a hundred percent possible to avoid making the same mistakes. Yeah, I think um, failing uh, only brings a new experience, nothing else, you know. Yeah. <laughs> If you fail, you, you can get uh, skills and you can't get uh, in school, university, <laughs> from books, <laughs> all the skills. Yeah, it's only from experience. Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, focusing. Uh, for example, Bill Gates uh, uh, shares uh, some insights uh, how uh, he handles uh, his businesses. Uh, uh, for example, uh, when he has... Uh, a few products uh let's let's talk about two products uh, a and b and um uh, after selling these products um, he uh, can uh, get a uh, one x uh, profit from uh, product a and two x profit from product b and uh, after this he uh, uh, can uh, leave product A uh, to invest all money to product B because uh, uh, it's like focusing, you know, to get uh, a lot more results. Um, how to uh, find uh, this uh, uh, best-selling products uh, for brands if they have a hundred products, not two products, uh, a lot of products, even thousand products, I don't know, <laughs> from your experience. How to uh, pay attention with that? Because I often see when companies uh, try to cover all their products to invest money and they don't analyze that uh, if um, they sell only best-selling products, uh, uh, they can get a lot more results. Uh, for example, 80% uh, of all profit can uh, come from uh, 20% of products uh, for example even apple uh, sells uh, iphone and get uh, gets uh, 70% of all revenue from just iphone yeah share your insight yeah it's uh, you know it's a great question one of the things i think so many founders um do wrong at the gate they try to expand their product line far too quickly right mm -hmm. start with two or three it's a really manageable number um and if you have other ideas R&D them and just have them ready in the, in, the, in the sidelines, right? When you start talking to your buyers and retailers, one of the first questions they want to know is, okay, cool, you have these. What are your expansion plans? What's coming next, right? So when you can say, oh, you know, I actually have a few other flavors that we're waiting on, but we want to see how these ones take off so we know how to adjust and which ones to launch with next, retailers would love to hear that. Like, oh, okay, you're clearly thinking about what's going to go come next and you're waiting for data, both big, nice words and things they like to see. Um, so the first, the first thing is just don't have so many products to begin with. Like don't launch them all at once, first and foremost. Um, and then if you do it that way, it also means that as you launch ones, you can evaluate how well they're doing, right? So um, going back to Fatso, Jill has a great company. Like, she does such great work. Um, but she put this pulled a product recently because it just wasn't selling well. It was a, I think it was her chocolate um, peanut butter. Um, it, it wasn't, it didn't mix together well. It looked a little gross in the jar. It just wasn't selling. So she crashed it. She did a whole video. She had a great, actually, like a rest in peace burial video for this jar. It was so well done. Um, but she just recognized that as much as it, it was a product that she should probably have, just given what everyone else has on the market, it just wasn't working. So she pulled it, right? And so not being afraid to pull a product is a huge part of that too, right? There's this fear that I've had. So once you have that catalog of 100, 200,000, I'm actually no company's got something like 40,000 items. Um, and they have them all listed on Amazon. Like, are you kidding me? There's no way that you're actually moving all those products. And, and to their credit, like, yeah, we probably aren't, but we got one sale from it at one point, so we just don't want to miss out on that sale. Well, okay, but the big cost here is the cost of storing it there, keeping it there, listing it there. There's a lot of cost tied up in having this product that isn't moving at the velocity you need it to. So one of the best ways to look at 
um, your product line to see which ones to keep and which ones not to keep are your sales velocity. Uh, you know, not not how many stores are you in. I don't actually care about that number that much. Um, what I care about is in the stories you're in, how fast are you moving through your product? And if you have products that aren't moving quickly, you know, my default is delist them. You're paying a lot of money to have something there that's costing you money. It's not making you anything. The only exception to where I would say, you know, if it's a slower sales velocity is if you're still making a decent margin on it, even if you're secondary or tertiary or, you know, what could be your hundredth product on the list, but it's still making up a decent amount of free. So speaking of Apple, like Apple's a great example, right? They're not going to stop selling MacBooks, right? It's a key part of their of their product offering. They're going to keep iterating on it and innovating on it. Um, and so they're going to keep doing it because it adds a lot of value to the customer. They still make a lot of money on those machines and it's not, they're not losing money on that venture, right? So that's kind of my break point. If you're, if you're okay with breaking even on having a product on shelf, especially in the early days where you kind of have to, okay, cool. Once you get past that though, you're paying huge amounts of money. So why are you doing it? Why are you keeping it there? So I look at the profitability of each one typically tied to sales velocity. And if it is a hyper niche product that isn't moving, um, then that's where we can get into strategy again, because it's okay. So this is a product that you, that's built for customer type X. That's a hyper niche. And so you sell a hundred units of it a year compared to all your other ones that are selling in the thousands. So are you going to delist that product? Well, yes and no. You're going to delist it from all the mass merchandisers where you're not moving more than a unit a year because why are you going to pay the 30K, 10K, whatever the, hunt, like the tens of thousands of dollars is going to cost for you to have that listing. But you are going to keep it in all the um, specialty stores that target that that consumer. And that's the only place you'll sell it. And you'll do great there. You'll produce less of it. You'll have a steady sales velocity from those retailers. And so you don't always have to delist, but you do need to optimize for your target audience. It goes all the way back to who the hell is your target audience and why are they buying you versus everyone else, right? It's, this is what I love about marketing and product is that it's all tied together into such a neat little bundle, which is good and bad because when you get it right, it's amazing. Problem is when you don't do it quite right, you end up with missing pieces and things fall apart a little bit. Yeah, yeah, valuable, love it. Okay, uh, let's talk about um, dividing marketing marketing budget. For example, you mentioned that uh, yeah, uh, your customers uh, don't like to discuss about marketing budget, but you know, um, uh, for example, uh, they share hundred uh, k, you know, uh, and uh, wanna promote. Uh, products but if you see that uh, it's better to uh, spend this money with one item how to explain that it's not good decision you know uh, trying to cover a lot of products uh, and uh, you can get a lot more sales uh, if you spend all this budget uh, with one product um, so for us that might not actually be the answer for us if you want to market 10 products that might actually be the right decision for a hundred thousand um, dollars so so when we look at trying to move a product within a retailer, right? We, it's the same thing mm -hmm. if you're doing online, but I like working brick and mortar because it's just easier for us all to work with. Um, so if you're a brand that has four or five different products, right? You have a choice. So let's look at ConAgra, right? Massive company, tons of brands. Every once in a while, they'll do for like the VH sauces, they'll do dedicated VH sauce promotions because they want to move just that sauce tied to typically something like the Chinese New Year or a very specific holiday. And so they'll allocate 100,000 plus actually easily to that campaign. At other times, say like for Super Bowl, Conagra does a multi-buy 
or they'll do a multi-brand campaign tying multiple brands together to that event. So you'll see um, VH is usually part of it. Um, oh my goodness, I'm blanking what their corn dog name is. Pogos, there we go. Pogos and probably you know one of the, one of their popcorn brands, if not both of them, right? And so for those ones, you can still spend that hundred thousand dollars across all those brands, but how you do it might be a little different. So instead of having your one shelf blade in the VH aisle, you might instead put it over in Frozen. So you might place it on, you might anchor the campaign off of a different off of one brand, or you might reallocate some of the the budget away from something like social and push it more in stores. So you can have a secondary blade in a different aisle, do a cross aisle campaign. So really what it's going to come down to on whether I have to say you should be focusing on one or multiple products is what are your objectives? What are the retailers you're looking to work with? And um, from that, I can say whether that hundred thousand is going to achieve what you want or not using the tactics you want, right? A hundred thousand dollars, I can give it to you and I'm sure you could do magical things with that in the digital space, right? You could do all sorts of great stuff. If you want to come and do the same thing in a retailer, it might not be enough, not because of my costs. Like we're not, I, I will say, we're not the cheapest agency out there, but we're very much on average with everyone else within you know, our bracket. Um, but you know, it, it might not make sense to come through us just because of the, the in-store media costs. So um, that's really comes down to who you're trying to sell it to, what are your KPIs, you know, what's the overarching objective of, of not just this one campaign, but for the brand for the year? Because sometimes we need to take that into consideration too, right? You don't want to have a solo brand campaign followed by a multi-brand that also includes that brand. You, know, you have to, there's so much to think about. And a lot of that's, in the bigger brands, a lot of that's done for us and they come to us with all that planned. Smaller brands, um, we'd love to do this too. We'll go and brainstorm with them be like, you know, here's kind of what you're looking to do. Here's what the year might look like. You know, talk about it with your internal team, bring in your sales team, talk about that, tweak it, make your calendar, and then we can work with you on each individual campaign once you've kind of fine-tuned where you want to allocate out your budgets. Um, so we'll get involved at that point, but it's it, it's not, it, this is what, it's, it's so fun about this type of marketing is that there's, there's always multiple options and multiple avenues. And what really, speaking of differentiation, what I think sets myself and the think tank and Sherry and Justin, the whole team apart from every other agency out there is that we are hyper-selective around not taking on opportunities that don't give great value to the clients, right? Um, we can take on, I mean, through the pandemic, we got all sorts of calls from brands asking for digital work or social work. And for most of them, the budgets were, I mean, you'd look at the budget and be like, yeah, that's for the brand your size. That's a very healthy budget. And I look at it and go, it's a great budget, but not for me because I'm going to eat half of that just in my studio costs because we work with big brands. And so it, the, the scale doesn't make sense. So, you know, we've turned away and I've turned away, I don't even know what the number is anymore, millions, right? Mm -hmm. just we aren't a good fit. We're not going to give a good value. We're not going to give a good ROI um, because for me, I'd rather do great work that makes everyone really happy on the outcome um and so for that i'd rather say no to you now and tee you up with an amazing agency who can kill it with your budget and then come back to me when you want to start getting into retail or you're like hey you know i actually want something that's more multi-channel or omni-channel or integrated whatever the fun buzzword you want to use to say across all the different channels um that's where we really flex and really show our values when you have a more complex campaign and you need to integrate retailers when you want to really drive a huge sales push at a specific time that's when you come to me and say, you know, that's when the think tank can really bring the big value. Um, for one-off projects, sometimes they make sense. Sometimes they don't. We take them ad hoc, but normally for a smaller brand, 
I mean, I've got a whole host of small agencies who just kill it in doing their social and digital work. Um, that, you know, for the 5K a month, that's all in, including media buy. You know, we could maybe do it. Um, but why are you coming to me? Go to, you know, a smaller yeah. agency who can, who'll take 3,000 of that, but all that is into your media dollars, if not even more. Because for us, we'd be like, yeah, we can't get that much over to media. It's just going to cost us that much more to create everything for you. Um, yeah, yeah, valuable. Okay, uh, you mentioned a few times about uh, cooperating with uh, sales people, uh, sales team, uh, and um, according to a few studies, uh, sales people distrust marketers. You know, <laughs> uh, they um, uh, it, it depends. Of course, uh, they feel that they know everything. I don't know <laughs> or something like this. But uh, how to take away these objectives? Uh, if you um, are going to cooperate with sales team to learn about customers, to get their insights and create a cohesive strategy yeah, to cooperate, uh, to, uh, I don't know, to chase uh, one goal. How to uh, take uh, all these objectives away? Uh, really good question. Um, the easiest way I found to overcome any objective is to first put yourself into their shoes and then reframe your statement from their perspective. Not the easiest thing to do. I have many years of, of training people on how to do this. So I'm not bad. But the quick answer is for a marketer trying to explain to the sales team and get that conversation flowing, just talk about sales, right? As a marketer, here's the thing. As a marketer, me, forget being a marketer, me. You come to me with a campaign and you say, you got so many impressions, right? Unless the, the explicit primary objective was impressions, which let me assure you should never be your primary KPI, um, I don't care, right? It, it kills me because my own deck uses impressions as one of our metrics in, within our deck because we can't share the more detailed information, right? Client privilege, whatever. Um, so for the sales team, just think of them. They don't give a crap about your impressions. They don't care how many likes or comments or what your engagement rate is. All they care about is how much traffic are you driving to the store and how much product is that person buying. So for you as a marketer, put it into their language. So this social campaign we're anticipating will drive about uh, an increase of about 30% of visitors to store. From there, now they're in your space, and we want to incentivize them even more to make that purchase through this campaign. And so to accomplish this, we wanted to see if you could go talk to the buyer to see if we can negotiate, you know, can, is there space within our budget so we negotiate a pallet discount, or can we negotiate for a secondary placement or a flyer position or whatever? Do so engagement's part of not just the, uh, not just the end result of we're doing this, is this okay? But you get them from the get-go, right? We want to do this. What can you bring from your side? Um, how do we make sure that this is going to be executed so you get the sales numbers that you're looking for? And I think marketers who go to sales right from the get-go and start talking to them about, you know, we want to move this. We're anticipating a lift of X amount. We're going to need this much more product available. Is that feasible? Can you line that up? Can we talk to the retailer about how that's going to look and make sure that's smooth? And if you have all that conversation going from the start, you get way higher acceptance rates because the sales team are now not looking at you as, a threat. They're not looking to you as this person who doesn't understand what the hell they're talking about because they're not a salesperson. Um, in the same way that marketers like, you know, I, I've been on both sides of this equation, so I'm great in the middle being like, both of you are dumb. Just talk to each other from the get-go. Um, but really, for sales, talk to them about sales, right? Here's what we want to do. It's going to Yes, it's going to cost this much money. It's going to come out of your budget, but we're anticipating a lift of X to accomplish this type of result. And here's how we want to do it. Go and talk and make it happen. Right. Um, I think there's also been a big shift 
been going on for a while, um, but sales and marketing are starting to talk more and more. Um, partly it's because sales are recognizing that their leads come from marketing. And so they kind of need to feed information back to marketing so their lead quality gets better. And conversely, marketers are recognizing that they're accountable to um, revenue. Right? At the end of the day, they're not accountable for the number of likes or how fast you've grown the social media accounts, part of your KPIs. But what you're really being held to is how much more money are you bringing to this company? And so if you think about it like that, it makes so much sense that sales and marketing have to be talking together all the time. Right? In the same way that sales needs to be talking to supply chain all the time to make sure in logistics to make sure that when they sell an extra two pallets to retailer X, that it's actually going to get there in time and it's not going to get held up due to you know manufacturing delays or products not being available or you can't get a container right now because you can't get a container in, in, anywhere in the world for a decent price because of you know COVID backlog. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Valuable. You know, I'll consider, you know, how to talk to salespeople. Okay. I, I have the last question about um, setting goals, uh, short goals and long goals. For example, uh, uh, marketing uh, can't cover only short goals uh, to bring uh, sales today, tomorrow, or in close time. Uh, what about long goals? Uh, how uh, to uh, set up them, how to find them, uh, uh, for example, I mean, like uh, for uh, an year or two years or five years, it depends. Uh, share your insights. Sure. So, um, you know, I think marketing plays a role in all your goals, right? So, yes, you can certainly look at marketing as a short-term goal lever, but it's much more than that. So, you know, I've really hammered on how I think sales numbers and the KPIs around sales are of utmost importance. And I, I stand by that, particularly for short-term goals, right? Um, because you're doing campaigns designed to generate a lift in a set period. When you look at something like a three-year plan, you know, it's really more the sales team who are going to be the ones growing new accounts and finding new um, sellers, et cetera. But for them to do that job effectively, they need the right data from the research team or marketing team. And the marketing needs to equip them with the right, uh, not just the right sales sheets and documents to go and have that conversation, but they need to be building a brand strategy, and a marketing strategy and a branding strategy to grow the brand within the marketplace at large. So it just becomes more and more prevalent, right? Gaining not necessarily market share in a, in a, in a revenue um, standpoint, but in an awareness standpoint. Um, and so, you know, marketing is a key part of all that. So when you start looking at the three-year plans, you know, you're not going to be looking at, we want to increase sales. Sorry, marketing won't be the number one responsible for increasing sales in this retailer from X to Y over the next three years. But they'll be part of that conversation and they're going to play a very active role in it. So they're going to need to be in that meeting and they're going to be talking to the salespeople about, okay, so we're going to do that. What are the challenges you're facing in booking that meeting, getting to the yes, not getting on shelf? When we lost out to that competitor, what was the reason? How can we address that from marketing. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's a price point thing. Marketing can't help, right? You've got to go back to supplier. It's the whole thing. But if it's a, you know, we're just not standing out on shelf enough. You know, we're not a bold enough brand for them to want to take. Oh, that we can fix. That's a marketing thing. Um, as part of that plan as well, you know, looking at brands and how they evolve, you might have a brand refresh. Um, so that becomes part of the plan for marketing. When does that start being done? How's that rolled out? What's the go-to-market on that? And the bigger the brand, the more runway you need to have that occur properly from the design work to announcing it, to the rollout, to the swap over, to the you know burial of the old brand. It's a whole process that can take. And, I mean, CIBC just redid their brand and I hate it. Um, I've done a couple posts on it now, but they, they did the, the trademarks on it in 2018. They just rolled it out this year. 
So for them, this is a rebrand that's been going on for, you have to imagine, at least five years by now, a couple of years in design work, back and forth, approvals, yada, yada, before they filed trademarks. Um, so for long-term plans, marketing is a huge piece of that. So the types of goals I like to see for marketing is we want to be, you know, hold this amount of market share. We want to be ranked against these ones in the market. Um, we want to, um, in, so some of them can be larger um, programs as well. So adding in a loyalty program doesn't happen like this. It takes a, quite a bit of time to develop it and figure out how you're going to position it. Who's going to host it? What prizes are you going to do? That's all marketing. Talk to sales and supply is part of it, but that's a huge marketing initiative, right? Um, that can take a couple of years just to, in talking about it before you even start penciling it in. So, you know, there's lots of different types of long-term goals that marketing needs to be part of. Um, it, it's They may just not be market, traditional marketing, right? So as an example, we want to be in six new, six new retailers by the end of 2023. Awesome. The marketing team is going to be doing a lot of research into that, understanding what those shoppers look like, looking at what platforms are available, because when they go and pitch to get in, they need to go in to say, here's how we're also going to drive traffic to your store. Well, that's all marketing, right? And so you need that back and forth. So whatever plans you're doing, I think, you know, um, often historically sales have been left out of those, or marketing rather has been left out of those conversations, just get brought in once it's all been decided. But I think companies today and the really smart companies today are getting marketing in there right from the get-go. And there's no wall between sales and marketing. It's sales and marketing. So jam it all together. And if you start looking around, a lot of the C-suite positions have started to shift to sales and marketing for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ibel. Okay, JR, tell uh, people how they can find you, reach out to you, learn more about you, or order your services. For sure. So um, I love to connect with absolutely everyone. You can find me on LinkedIn really easily. I spend far too much of my day there um because it is my one of my go-to business tools so definitely reach out um my name Derek Kligerman find me very easily um it's probably the most active platform I'm on and uh, you can find me on other social ones too just search my name I pop up um for the think tank you can find us on LinkedIn uh, you can also go to our website tttmrktg.com um also on LinkedIn and then uh, for anything else find me and I can tell you more about it yeah, I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Yeah, a lot of valuable insights. I've learned myself, you know, yeah, because <laughs> marketing is a little bit different uh, with digital marketing, you know, where we uh, usually get traffic and sales. And um, uh, all these links you can find uh, in the description below. Uh, if you listen on Apple, uh, Google, Spotify, uh, reach out to Jared, uh, uh, click to these links that he mentioned. And thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, uh, it's a big pleasure to learn from you thanks for listening to this entire podcast please rank your experience in apple spotify google or any other platforms that you may use also please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift we'll see you soon on other valuable audio podcasts